0: When New Labour came into power in 1997, you, Tony Blair, Alastair Campbell, you all had ambitious plans to reform the way 10 Downing Street worked, the way the civil service worked. So do you have some sympathy with what Dominic Cummings was trying to do?
1: Yes, I do have some sympathy with the need for uh, reform of the civil service. I mean, I was a civil servant for 16 years before I went to work for Tony Blair uh, in opposition in the Labour Party. And I did see in that time the need for some fairly radical change. Um The problem I have with the approach that Dominic Cummings is taking is it's more likely to be counterproductive. Already the things he was saying have been rowed back by other spokesmen from government. um, And trying to make it about weirdos um, rather than about serious change in the civil service is actually probably counterproductive. His own time in the Department of Education was not notable for his success in persuading the civil service to, to change. And the thing about the civil services, you need to persuade them to change because they are the vehicle for delivery of the changes that you want in public services. So simply attacking them doesn't achieve that much. And in fact, in the end, I think probably what Tony said about scars on my back uh, in change of the civil service wasn't the best way to do it. If you want uh, GPs to change the way they do things, attacking them is not the best way to do it. You do need to take some steps to make them change the way they do things, but attacking them is not the best way
0: to do it. And how much of a difference can one man at the centre make, whatever their ideas and energy? Only
1: a limited amount. I mean, uh, I understand that Boris Johnson believes in the great man theory of history. And again, I have some sympathy with that. But actually, you, the thing I discovered when you go to number 10 Downing Street is how little power you have. There's a myth in British government that number 10 is sort of all powerful. On the contrary, you have very few civil servants. You have no budgets to speak of. So everything you do is by persuasion. You have to persuade your cabinet colleagues, and obviously that's much stronger when you won a, a big electoral victory. Uh, but you also have to persuade the civil servants to do it. Um, civil servants have often been working on problems for uh, many decades. They know why all the solutions that have been tried in the past don't work. And it is their job to warn you of the elephant traps you will fall into. But you also have to persuade them that you have made a decision and although this particular approach didn't work in the past, you're going to try it in a new form and persuade them to go ahead and do it, not to have passive resistance. And that's quite hard to do, but it requires leadership and persuasive powers, not just uh, uh, telling people what to do. And the combative approach of Cummings, there's something, again, to uh, putting the civil service on warning. But if you just do that, you're going to fail because they actually have to do it as well as um, be frightened.
0: You previously talked about uh, creating an office of the Prime Minister. Is that still something that you think would, would make sense? Yes,
1: I do. I mean, I was thinking of OMB in the US government, the Office of Management and the Budget, where you brought together the financial and personnel aspects of government, and that can make a, can be a very effective tool for government. So we did think, well, as I thought briefly about a couple of times, about bringing those together. And I remember that uh, Ed Balls did that again when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, uh, thought about that kind of change. I do think there's a case for that. Of course, the Treasury will resist it very hard because the Treasury has long been this powerful institution in British government. But I think separating the finance and um, and spending bits is worth thinking about and putting those together with the Cabinet Office would be useful because the Cabinet Office is a very odd animal. It changes nature with different administrations, changes nature over time. And I think giving it this function with some real muscle in terms of spending would be the best way to deal with it. Mm.
0: How long does he have before the real world political crises, events and so on get in the way and this reform agenda is is knocked off course? Well,
1: one prediction I think I'm fairly safe in making for this year is that uh, Boris Johnson will survive this year politically, but I don't believe Dominic Cummings will. When you put yourself front and centre and make yourself public in this way, you do end up like Rasputin in the River Neva in chains. Uh, That's what happens. You become the target. So maybe he wants to. Uh, He says he doesn't want to stay there long. I don't think he will be staying there long. I hope his disappearance doesn't stop reform because that reform is needed both in the civil service and goodness knows in public services more general, generally and the way that spending is allocated across the country. So I hope that isn't a victim of his uh, public dance with death.
0: Do you have any sense if, he's, if Boris Johnson is as passionate about this agenda? I have no evidence
1: that Boris Johnson is passionate about any of these agendas he, because... The objective clearly is to keep him away from the microphone and keep him saying anything. It's extraordinary. He said nothing on Iran. It's extraordinary the way they ran the election campaign. So uh, goodness knows what uh, things, apart from painting people on buses, he's actually passionate about.
0: You worked for a government that was in power with massive majorities. Did the opposition worry you at all during that time? It is crucial to have a strong
1: opposition, um, actually, particularly in the beginning months and years of a administration of a government that's won a big majority, if you don't, um, it's very hard to keep them accountable. You know, the press are going to give the new government a honeymoon. Uh, you know, when we came into government, we immediately moved to change the Prime Minister's questions. If we tried to do that six months later or a year later, we'd never have been able to do it. it was, I'm convinced it was the right thing to do, and no one's tried to change it back from what we did with Prime Minister's questions. But you can do those sort of quite radical things at that stage. And there's need for an opposition. that is two things. One, that is capable of forensic questioning. You need someone in Parliament who can stand up and ask questions that really probe at what the government is doing. And the notion of Jeremy Corbyn being there till April, having demonstrated absolutely comprehensively he's not capable of doing that, is very worrying. There won't be uh, real accountability uh, of this government until there's a new leader of the opposition. The second thing an opposition needs to do to be effective is to be a convincing alternative government. Um, only as a threat to the government in those circumstances. And again, for the last, uh, however long it's been, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn has been leader of the Labour Party, he has not been a convincing alternative government, as he uh, catastrophically demonstrated in the most recent election. So unless the opposition can be convincing as an alternative government, it is not fulfilling its function. And this system, our system of democracy does not work unless you have that kind of opposition. So I'm worried about the next four months, but I'm also worried about what the Labour Party does in terms of choosing a new leader. If it doesn't produce someone who's um, capable of winning an election, if it doesn't produce someone who's capable of holding the government to account, we're going to be in quite big trouble.
0: Do you think this will be a one-term government? I mean, d- depending on whether Labour follows the prescriptions you set out, is is, is there still a, still a way that it could win after five years?
1: It's certainly possible uh, that Boris Johnson uh, could not win a second election. Um, the, the voters in the North and the Midlands who he's won over, the new voters, the nationalist voters, have said they're lending their votes to him, and I think he's correct when he observes that. So that uh, those votes could certainly disappear. If you had a convincing leader uh, of the opposition who was patriotic, who was Um, had a a program that people genuinely thought addressed their concerns, then yes, he could be uh, quite vulnerable because he's trying to do the splits between an old Conservative Party that was based in the southeast and uh, the rural areas uh, based around a Thatcher's agenda to a new sort of nationalist party where he's trying to base himself on promises uh, from Brexit that are going to be very hard to deliver. So he's certainly going to be vulnerable in four years' time when the election happens. uh, But whether he'll be beaten or not will depend entirely on whether the opposition presents a credible candidate.
0: And from what you've seen so far of the the beginnings of the race to succeed Jeremy Corbyn, do you sort of sense that introspection, that deep thinking that's required is is underway?
1: Well, I kind of feel that if uh, the review is going to be headed by Ed Miliband, you have to ask yourself what the problem is you're trying to address. But the... um, No, I don't honestly think there's been a proper debate about why, I mean, lots of excuses have been presented about why Labour lost, rather than a proper soul searching about why, why it's lost and the sort of candidates that can replace them. There are good candidates in the race, so that's possible. But I fear that unless people are honest about why Labour lost, why it hasn't been a convincing opposition, then we'll end up with another bad leader.
0: The last election campaign saw a lot of criticism of the Conservative Lib Dem coalition and a refusal from the Lib Dems and Labour to, to work together. But can political parties work together? I mean, is that something you regret not working more with the Lib Dems after 1997?
1: Yeah, I think in many ways that was a tragic loss uh, in 97. You know, we'd done a lot of work secretly with Paddy Ashdown before the election in 97 about uh, working together in government. And I remember very much the phone call that Tony had with uh, Paddy as election results were coming in from uh, Sedgefield. And both of them really uh, walked away from what they'd uh, not agreed so much, but, but had been close to agreeing before the election of working together and building that progressive majority that could have made politics in this country different. Because if you have progressive forces together, it's, then, then Labour governments don't become punctuation points between long periods of conservative rule. They become uh, a more balanced system. So and I understand why both of them walked away Paddy was afraid of the big um labor majority Tony wasn't sure he could persuade um, his colleagues particularly John Prescott to uh have that kind of coalition with the liberals when we'd won such a big victory and didn't need it. But actually, that was the right time to do it when we had a big majority rather than when we were desperate in the form of Gordon Brown trying to form a coalition with the Liberals. So I think that was a big lost opportunity. We tried to work on it after 97. You'll remember the joint committees and uh, Roy Jenkins's work. But I kind of think it was too late by then. If we could have done it on that day in May in um, 97, I think our history would be very different. And I think unless we can get back to that kind of centrist political force bringing together all progressive uh, voters in Britain, it's going to be very hard to uh, win an election and keep a long period of, of that kind of government. Um, I don't. It couldn't have happened with Jeremy Corbyn. I don't I blame the Liberals at all for not wanting to serve in a government with Jeremy Corbyn. That was not their purpose. I think the Lib Dems do need to think now quite carefully about what their, their role is and how you deal with this centrist space. But as long as progressives are divided and Boris Johnson has managed to unite the right, including the extreme right of Farage and uh, and the UKIP voters, then progressives really have to think seriously if they ever want to win about you reuniting.
0: What does Labour do now about Brexit? The government seems to want it off the, off the front pages. Does Labour try and avoid it too?
1: So I think Brexit will probably dominate um, the newspapers and political news this year. For Labour, I think that's exactly why you need a forensic... Um, Uh, a forensic leader, someone who can really probe these points uh, with Boris Johnson, who's not very good at dealing with detail and forensic points and doesn't appear to know uh, many of the things he's agreed. The battle for a referendum, a second referendum, and for stopping Brexit is finished and gone. But that doesn't mean to say the battle on Europe is over. We've still got this debate about what kind of Brexit we're going to have. It's a completely blank page. We can end up with a Canada free trade minus, or we can end up with something that's much closer with a level playing field. And I think the job of the Labour Party will be to be arguing, trying to force his hand, trying to make coalitions with others, including in Scotland and the Dems, to try and push the government towards a much closer relationship with Europe so that we don't end up as far out as I fear we do risk at the moment.
0: You mentioned Northern Ireland. You obviously played a massive role in the Northern Irish peace process. How worried are you at the moment about what Brexit could mean for Ireland?
1: Well, very worried. I mean, the good news is that Boris Johnson abandoned what he was originally proposing to do, which was to put a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the Republic. That would have been a disaster for the Good Friday Agreement uh, and a disaster for nationalist and um, uh, Republican uh, people in Northern Ireland. So I'm glad that's gone. But what he's done is he's replaced it with something different, which is a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And it's no good him denying that that's what he's done. He's absolutely what he's done. And it's going to create significant problems. It creates economic problems for the small businesses in Northern Ireland to export to the UK. But the real problem is a different one. It's an identity and political one. The conflict in Northern Ireland was about identity. It was about people who wanted to be British, people who wanted to be Irish, living in the same space. We managed to come up with a solution in the Good Friday Agreement that allowed them to be either. Now we're going to have the situation where Northern Ireland sits as part of a United Ireland economically. There'll be, in economic terms, effectively, there'll be one island and all the rules will apply. Uh, The people of Northern Ireland will have very little say in those rules because they are not represented in Dublin. And the people will increasingly, I think, turn to the thought of a political United Ireland to go with the economic United Ireland. You've already seen that with the Catholic population in Northern Ireland. The reason there hasn't been a border poll is uh, despite demographic change that's leading to a, a Catholic majority in Northern Ireland, I think we're quite close to getting there now, about a third of Catholic voters have traditionally uh, supported remaining in the United Kingdom. Because of Brexit, that's gone down to about 10% of those voters. So there's still 10% of Catholics who think it's better to remain in the United Kingdom. That, once they're living in a united Ireland in economic terms, it's likely to go down further, and then you're going to get very close to 50-50. And you'll then start also seeing unionists, particularly middle-class unionists, business unionists, who see the disparity in GDP per head between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is astonishing. I believe it to be something like two to one, uh, given where I started dealing with Northern Ireland, when it was the Republic that was the poor cousin and the North, didn't want to join it as a strong industrial base. Um, That transformation is, is, is crucial, and I think all of these push factors will not inexorably lead to a united Ireland, but over the next decade, and if something changes, we'll make it really quite likely. And if we have a border poll, and the Secretary of State has to have a border poll under the Good Friday Agreement, if opinion polls show we're getting to 50-50, I think the danger is we end up with a sort of 52-48 as on Brexit, but on United Ireland. And if you have 52% wanting to join United Ireland, we will have to then implement that. Mm. But how do you do that with 48% of the population who don't want to join United Ireland? How do you represent their minority status inside a Catholic country? That could become very, very messy indeed. And people forget that the saga, you can choose where the Northern Ireland saga began, but it certainly didn't begin with the post office in 1916. It began with the UVF in 1913 and the mutiny of British forces. That's what led to a separate Northern Ireland, and that's what we'll be back to uh, if Boris Johnson pursues this path,
0: do you think the United Kingdom will survive Brexit? I think there's a very real risk. I think, uh,
1: and you, you can, and it's not necessarily um, contrary to what the people who elected Boris Johnson, leader of the Tory party, wanted. The opinion polls of Tory party members showed they were prepared to sacrifice Northern Ireland and Scotland in order to get Brexit which is an extraordinary thing for a traditionally unionist party, but that's what they think. In Northern Ireland, I think there is a real prospect. I don't. It's by no means certain, and uh, all sorts of things could change, but there's a possibility that we will end up with, with United Ireland over that period. And I think it's also probable uh, that the support for independence in Scotland will grow. And Boris Johnson is legally in the right in his ability to refuse to have a referendum uh, in Scotland. Uh, But he will discover, as the Spanish government have discovered in Catalonia, that the more you refuse people the right to choose, the more you're likely to drive up support um, for uh, independence. So in a way, um, he's helping uh, the SNP uh, by saying no to a referendum, because then the Scottish National Party doesn't have to hold such a referendum, doesn't have to win it. It can actually just ratchet up support. Uh, And that, in the end, will be very hard to resist. As a democratic country, where in Northern Ireland the whole agreement was based on consent, what we achieved was the acceptance by the IRA and by Republicans and by the Republic of Ireland that Northern Ireland had to be ruled by the consent of its majority and the majority wanted to remain in the United Kingdom and we would change that if the majority changed their view. I don't see how we can have that view for Northern Ireland and say if a majority in Scotland want to be independent, we're going to say no. Uh, If we try and do that, we really will find ourselves back in the 1960s in in real trouble in Scotland. So I don't think that's sustainable over a long period of time. So I think that what Boris Johnson is doing will build up support for independence. And if he goes for a really hard Brexit too, uh, that will have the effect of uh, increasing demand in Scotland for uh, independence. And we won't in the long term be able to stand out against that because we are a country based on democracy and consent. So over the next 10 years, I think there is the real possibility of the United Kingdom disappearing. It's not inevitable. It's not certain to happen, but there's that real possibility.
0: One question on just your your thoughts at a moment on the situation in Iran, how worried you are and and the consequences, knock effects in the Middle East and and Iraq.
1: I am worried about the situation in Iran. I'm not worried about suddenly tipping into the Third World War. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But there's a problem if you take individual steps without uh, thinking through the consequences and Um, what the um, what your overall strategy is and I fear that's what happened with President Trump you know as you know in the British Civil Service there's a process called Archbishop of Canterbury ABC you're told to put forward three proposals and you put forward one person who's completely mad and another who's ideologically opposed to you and then the third candidate you want the Prime Minister to choose as Archbishop of Canterbury And clearly, the Pentagon has been putting up proposals to President Obama and then to President Trump, which had at one extreme doing nothing on Iran, and the other extreme killing um, uh, the head of the Quad's force. And um, uh, to their amazement, the uh, president actually chose one of the options that had been on the table for ages, but been dismissed by people for obvious reasons. So it was a very rash move and a very um, dangerous one. But I don't think it will tip people into war because i think the iranians will be very cautious in how they respond the attacks last night were very carefully judged in what they did and seemed to avoid any any casualties uh, i think for trump the red line will be appears to be certainly in the case of afghanistan american casualties so if they do kill american soldiers or contractors that will be a problem um, but what worries me is that all this actually far from making it easier to get to a settlement on Iran probably makes it harder. There are contrarians in Washington who argue, uh, even coming from non-Republican ranks, that by taking a tough gesture like this, you might make negotiations more likely. I'm, I'm not convinced about that because Iran has politics too. It may not be a democracy, but it's a very pluralistic system. And any leader at the moment who proposed making concessions to the United States uh, would find time very, very rough indeed. So I think the danger of this is to say not a new world war, but making eventual negotiations to de-escalate the situation much more difficult. Uh, hopefully we'll get to them in due course, but uh, this may now take more time and more lives
0: lost. What is it like for a new prime minister being faced by an international crisis like this so early on in their premiership?
1: It's difficult for a new prime minister to get to grips with the foreign policy agenda with how to lead on foreign policy. Now, of course, there's a big difference between Boris Johnson and Tony Blair. Tony Blair had never been in government, uh, knew very little about foreign policy. So when he came in, it was uh, a a very rapid learning exercise for him. Um, But what strikes me in the difference is uh, the strange absence of leadership that Boris Johnson offered on Iran, having become prime minister, He didn't come back from his holidays in Mystique when the crisis kicked off. He was completely absent from setting out a line on um, uh, what Britain wanted out of this crisis or what Britain thought. He signed up for a joint statement with the French uh, and uh, Germans in his name, which didn't mention the Americans at all or say anything about American action apart from really condemning it. And then he put out his own personal statement, which was a bit more friendly to the Americans. Now, I understand that he has a difficult balancing act to um, conduct between the United States and Europe. Now we're leaving Europe, but it's still going to depend on Europe. And I can see why on one hand he's trying to stay with the Europeans on Iran. On the other hand, he's trying to appeal to President Trump. But I don't think that's going to work. Uh, and I think this was going to be the crisis of our foreign policy going forward. Our foreign policy since the war has broadly been built on being part of Europe and having a strong transatlantic relationship. By leaving Europe, we're going to make that um, uh, European basis of our foreign policy very difficult to maintain. And at the same time, with a very unusual president in Washington, having a strong transatlantic relationship will be extremely difficult. So our our foreign policy, the basis of it has been fundamentally um, undermined. I think the only way to try and bridge that, and I noticed that Boris Johnson has returned to the word bridge between Europe and America, which Tony Blair uh, launched in 1997, and I never particularly liked the word myself, the bridge is something that gets walked over. But the, um, I do think there's a big problem in our foreign policy, and the only way to solve it is going to be by strong leadership. And his first outing in the ring does not show strong leadership, and I think that will be a problem unless he changes that in the months to come. <music>